Well, as I look back on life, one of the most challenging periods of life is being in junior high or middle school. It's a time where your body is changing, you're trying to figure out who you are, uh, you're experiencing things like acne, and, 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 you know, kids at that age are just kind of brutal, aren't they? I mean, they're comparing to one another things like, you know, who's the most popular, who's the most athletic, you know, uh, who has the cool stuff. This is kind of like a Where's Waldo thing. Find the pastor in the picture here. Um, and some of us have interesting haircuts in that time. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that we're constantly comparing with our peers. And unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily change when you become an adult. I think adults maybe learn to hide it better in some ways, but it's, it's out there. And not much has changed in about 2,000 years. Comparison happened in the day of Jesus. Oftentimes it was a comparison of who's the most spiritual, who's the closest to God. But Jesus, as we just sang, the King of Kings, he enters history. He brings the kingdom of God, and he brings salvation. And he addresses this issue. And he points out that what the world esteems, what the world says is effective, is often a false confidence, a false hope. And actually, it counts on the salvation of and the identity that you find in him. So this is what Jesus wants to address to us today in the scriptures. If you have your Bible, you might want to open up to Luke chapter 18. And Jesus has been talking about what it means to wait for him for his return. But again, he's trying to turn people towards himself and have their confidence in him rather than themselves. And so this is what Jesus says, this is starting at verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. And so Luke says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into these words from our Lord Jesus. So Lord Jesus, these words are here because you want us to pay attention to them. They're both a warning and they're an encouragement. 
So if we need to be warned and changed and repent, I pray you'd give us the grace to do that. If we need to be encouraged to hear your words of hope, give us grace to do that as well. But take your word, Lord, and let it hit its target today. Let it not return void as you have promised in your word. We trust you're going to do that, Lord. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. One of my favorite stories is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It's his book. It's been made a movie. It's been made a musical. And I, I love that musical. But there are two main characters. There are actually multiple characters. But the two main characters is, first of all, a, a man named Javert. He's a cop. He's a prison guard. And he is convinced of his own goodness. He's a letter of the law kind of guy because he's, a, he's there to uphold the law, if you will. He's a law keeper. He sees things in black and white. There's no variation. There's no exception. And you, if, you're, if you've seen the musical or, or heard the musical, he sees, sings a, a song called Stars, and that's what it's all about. If the stars somehow vary, then there's condemnation. That's how he sees the world. So the law keepers, they're the good guys. The law breakers, they're the bad guys. There's no exception. And the other character is a man named Jean Valjean who is a young man, steals bread to save his nephew, his starving nephew. And he's put into prison for 19 years. And finally, when he's released, it's not, his sentence is not done. He has to go on parole. So every town he comes to, he has to present these, these papers that say, I was in prison. And so he gets rejected. He can't get a break. And every place he goes, everyone will have nothing to do with him. So finally he turns around and steals silver, actually from the local pastor, the local bishop. But the bishop turns around and shows him grace. For when Valjean is caught, he says, oh, yeah, I gave that to them. Oh, by the way, here are the silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean goes into, he doesn't know what to do with this as he experiences this grace. And he decides to break his parole. He takes the, the silver and to carve out a whole new life for himself. But it's interesting, in that whole new life, he becomes an, actually a grace giver. But he's broken his parole. And this man, Javert, pursues him. Because he's, he is convinced that Jean Valjean is a rotten apple. That he cannot be redeemed. And this is pretty much what Jesus is talking about in this parable. So, point number one. Jesus has come to warn the self-righteous. Jesus has come to warn the self-righteous. Again, look at what verse 9 says. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. These are people who are, are checking out Jesus, but they're pretty sure they've, they've got things wired. They're pretty sure they know how to keep their toes on the line. They know how to keep the rules. And Jesus is addressing them. And it's redemptive. It's corrective, but it's redemptive. And he tells this story 
setting it in the temple. The temple at this time is the epicenter of all Jewish worship, all Jewish uh, culture. And this is the place where worship and prayer takes place. And so we've got these two kind of extremes, a Pharisee and a tax collector. We'll talk about the Pharisee first. If you've been with us, you know that the Pharisees kind of viewed themselves as the spiritual stormtroopers, the gold standard. They set themselves apart from others. And so it happens in this, in this parable. It says he stood by himself, probably in a very prominent place, so people could see him. He was righteous in his own mind, and he was going to show it. And he issues this, what I call, self-righteous prayer. And self-righteousness, first of all, needs to degrade others. And so he prays this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. So, uh, first of all, this is supposed to be a prayer. And typically, the nature of prayer is to ask for supplication. Rather, this is kind of a review before God of self-congratulations. I'm doing pretty good, God. And he's praying out loud. Think about this. I'm so glad I'm not like Beth Osterlin. That poor girl. I'm so good, so glad, you know, that I'm not like Mike Amundsen. Can you believe that? He's praying out in front of everybody. These are not kind words. And the way this man views the things are in black and white. There's me and my tribe, and then there are, you know, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, this tax collector, and everyone else. Everyone else is in that pile. And basically, he's saying, I'm the standard. There's no deviation. Any deviation is less. Now, here's the thing, folks. Most of us in this room have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We want our lives to please Him, don't we? We want to be living lives that are in line with His Word. We want to be living lives that, you know, he can be happy with. It's like, he's told us what to do and, and we're obeying. But here's the subtle thing that can happen to us along the way. Maybe as we grow in our faith, maybe as we, you know, grow in even a little personal holiness, we start to get good at being good. I kind of like the fact that you know, I used to swear a lot, and I don't do that anymore. But Carl does. Man, we've got to pray for Carl. Right? And we're comparing. We're comparing ourselves to others. And not that, you know, not that we want to, uh, you know, congratulate robbery, doing evil, adultery, or anything of that nature. But when we do that, it creates a toxic environment. It makes us self-righteous. It makes us less compassionate to the struggles of others. It makes us the judge and jury of maybe things that are, are gray areas, you know? 
With Jesus, it was, he doesn't wash his hands all the time before he eats. Maybe the things here, you know, in our community that we judge people for. The type of movies you see, whether you homeschool your kids or not. Things of that nature. And also the issue is we deceive ourselves, thinking that we could never fall into that type of error. And worst of all, it makes us have contempt for others rather than love for them. It makes us have contempt for others rather than love for them. And what are the two greatest commandments? To love God with all you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't mean you approve of everything they do, but to have a heart for them rather than excluding yourself, separating yourself like, oh, I don't hang out with those folks. No, there's a heart of love. Self-righteousness, again, needs someone to despise, to elevate themselves. Self-righteousness also needs to overachieve in order to hold God at debt. Look at continuing at verse 12. He says, and I fast twice a week. I guess that's good for your diet. But you know, as far as what the law said, there was only one time a year you needed to fast. And that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 20, 29 and 30. But the purpose of fasting is this. It's thoughtful reflection. It's repentance. It's even using the feeling of hunger to make you hungry for God. It's all in relationship to Him. It's saying, God, I need you more than my actual food. That's what I need right now. But the Pharisee was fasting for fasting's sake. For the discipline to show others how spiritual he was. It was an outward demonstration of his devotion. See, guys, you can see how spiritual I am by how much you can hear my stomach growl. And again, God is looking to get the heart. He's not looking to have us jump through hoops. And I just want to read a rebuke that God gave to his own people about fasting because they were using it in the wrong way. This is out of Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 8. And the people are saying, why have they fasted? Why have we fasted, they say. And you have not seen it. They're talking to God. Why have we humbled ourselves? And you have not noticed. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. And in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. This is, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people, bless you, for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? And for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Just basically keeping up the appearance? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then he says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice, 
to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, you clothe them. And you do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will be go, go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You see, there is no spiritual discipline that has true value just for doing it for its own sake. It has to be practiced in relationship to God. Saying, God, how do you want to move me? How do you want to change me? How do you want to get my attention? So, and number two, the, the Pharisee, back to our story. He lists, he gives a tenth of all he gets. And in the Greek, it's like, I give a tenth of everything. Every little thing. Not just my income. Not just my crops. But I give you my garden herbs, my spices, every little thing. I mean, down to the minute detail, more than it's required. But the subtext is this. God, I've given you everything, all you owe me because I've been a good guy. Because I've given to you. You owe me a good life. You owe me a life that's not has no adversity. You owe me right standing before you. And this is the problem of self-righteousness. You know, and, and Jesus only mentioned two things. There are many things he certainly could have mentioned. But here's, the, here's what Jesus is really trying to point to the danger of. Is being deceived somehow that we can be self-saviors. If I just keep the rules well enough, if I do things right, then God, you have to accept me. Because I've played by the rules. A self-salvation program. <laughs> Few problems with that. I think we all practically know it. None of us can keep all of God's standards, which has to do with not only our actions, but our intent. And even if we say, you know, the standard is batting above 500, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, still the, the wages of sin is still death. You know, it's interesting. I was, I've been reading through Leviticus this last week. And, and if you've read through Leviticus, sometimes it's as interesting as watching paint dry, right? It's just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And here's the point that God is trying to teach His people. Is that sin separates us from God. And that sin is costly. Sin is costly. And that we ultimately are not the standard. I'm in Leviticus chapter 4, and it's interesting. It's all about sacrifices for unintentional sins. Like there was no intent from me, you know, being sinful, but dang, I touched an unclean animal. Or, you know, I, I did something that was completely unintentional. But it made me unclean. It made me unclean. It separated me from a holy God. And so there had to be a sacrifice. And here's the point. Is that we can't be the one who determines what sin is. 
What separates us from him? God is. And from the cross standpoint, I found, I found this great quote from C.H. Spurgeon this week, talking about things in light of the cross. It is not sin as we see it, which was laid on Christ, but sin as God sees it, not as our consciences feebly reveal to it to us, but sin as God beholds it. And that's an amazing thing, folks, because there are many things that I'm obtuse about and I don't realize I'm out of sorts with God. But nevertheless, it's covered by the blood of Christ. And what a great, what a great thing to hope in. You see, and I've quoted this before, Ravi Zacharias talks about the law. The law is like a mirror. The Old Testament law is like a mirror. It shows us, it shows us our sin. It shows us where we're dirty, right? But we can't use it to wipe our faces to get clean. It's not like a faucet. That's not how it works. We really can't use it to get clean. So these words were important for Jesus' hearers, original hearers, because they did. I mean, a popular theological belief is, if I just keep the law well enough, God will save me. Rather than putting faith in God and what he has done, it's faith in self and what I'm able to do. And it's important for us. And one of the reasons why is because the self-salvation program doesn't work. It doesn't work. This is what the Apostle Paul will say about this in his, his book and wrote his letter to the Romans. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, they testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Paul was trying to say is, look, all of us have sinned and fall short. And there's no other way except what God has provided in Christ. Anything else is a false gospel. It's a false hope. And that's why he's warning his listeners, and that's why Jesus is warning us. The one who brings the kingdom of God, the one who brings salvation. Now there are two people in this story. We've looked at the Pharisee, now we're going to look at the tax collector. And the point here is that Jesus has come to give hope to sinners. Look at this man's response in prayer. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. <laughs> now if you are familiar with just the scriptures, you know that Jesus is is really working with stereotypes. You've got the Pharisee who's supposed to be the, you know, the good guy, and you've got the tax collector. And if you know anything about Jewish society, they were considered traitors. They were considered extortionists, people that were charged by Rome to collect taxes, and then they could take whatever they wanted off the top, more than that. They were physically protected by society, but they were outcasts. No one wanted to be friends with the, with the, the tax collectors because they were traders. And so, you know, who did the tax collectors hang out with? 
the unsavory people, the prostitutes, the drunks, the outcasts of society. And they were part of that, that group. You know what the interesting thing about the tax collectors is? They seemed to know that they had no righteousness in themselves. They had no pretense of their own virtue. Earlier in the same gospel, it says this. Chapter 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Why were they baptized? For the repentance of their sin. They're saying, I have gone the wrong way, and I need to turn around. And again, look at what this tax collector does, right? He stands at a distance. Again, this is a very public place of worship and prayer. And he stands at a distance. Now, I don't know what that means, whether he's standing a distance away from the altar, or that he's just finding his own corner because he's going, I got, I got nothing before a holy God. I got nothing before a holy people. I, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just here because God allows me to be here. And he continues on. And he would not even look up toward heaven. So he's aware of his shortcomings toward a holy God. He beats his breast. I don't see many people doing that in church these days, but it was a, it was a physical demonstration of his contrition. Of like, I'm so frustrated with my sin. I'm, I'm angry with myself even. And then he says these words. God have mercy upon me, on me a sinner. Now the word mercy there is a little different than what we are normally used to. When we talk about mercy, we're often, oftentimes talking about not getting what we deserve. And that's, that's a good definition. But here, this word, and it's only used twice in in the New Testament, it means to make propitiation or make atonement. It's not just, please God, don't give me what I deserve, but it's, no God, I need you to pay the bill. I need you to do something to pay for my unrighteousness because I can't do it in myself. The other place where it says this is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, which says this, for this reason he... he Talking about Jesus, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now listen to this, that he might make atonement. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, this is an awareness that you are spiritually bankrupt and you've got nothing to bring to the table before God, before a holy God. You got nothing except reliance upon him, that he would pay the bill. And this is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's humbly declaring your spiritual bankruptcy before God that we might be in a place to receive his riches in Christ Jesus through our faith in him. This is why I titled this sermon, Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit. Because this man who seemed completely morally bankrupt, and he was, puts his faith in God who gives him his righteousness. And the person who believed in his own goodness could not see his own moral bankruptcy.
So Jesus' conclusion on this matter is this. I tell you that this man, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Many of you know we're involved with uh, partnership and ministry with Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge. And I, again, I want to encourage you to be at that service on March 8th and, and even stick around for the meal afterward. But here's what's so refreshing about the clients there at Teen Challenge. Most of them, when you talk with them, you engage them, there is no pretense of them having their act together. There's no pretense of, yeah, I got this. I got this, this thing wired. They know that they need God. They know that they need God to change them and transform them. And, and they're in various places of, of that process. And it's messy. It's messy, but they know their need. And that's so refreshing to me. And every time I have the privilege to go and, and share the gospel with them or share in chapel, men or women, I always start out saying, hey, my name is Nathan, and I need Jesus, just like you. Because I'm a pastor, and I get paid to be good, right? But the truth of the matter is, I need Jesus. And I don't want to be fooled into thinking that somehow I've got my act together. Again, the standard is not you and me. The standard is a holy God. A holy God. And are we just as desperate for Jesus as the person who's struggling with addiction or other sin in their life? Am I desperate as those who are obvious sinners, if you will? And so this is good news. This is good news for everyone, but for the sinner, for the person who thinks they've gone too far, whether that is robbing, or whether that is um, cheating, or whether it's adultery, or what have you. Or whether it is gossip, or whether it is pride. It's good news. It's why Jesus came. And that is a blanket truth for all of us. All of us, like, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah's prophecy hundreds of years beforehand. So this is good news. That's why Jesus was sent to pay the price on the cross. And I just want to close things up with these words from Romans again. The Apostle Paul, he does such a great job of... of crystallizing these thoughts. But I always love these, these words here. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, that is work to be justified before God, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, who justifies the wicked, who justifies the prostitute, who justifies the tax collector, who justifies the drug addict, who justifies the prideful gossip, who justifies you and me. 
Sinners who have fallen short of God's standard. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Folks, that is the gospel. That's why we call it good news. And I know we talk about it a lot. But we need that to inform our whole lives. And we need to take that message to a world that so desperately needs it. So again, these words are here as a warning for any of us who start feeling like we're doing pretty good. I got this wired. Or maybe you're putting your faith in what you can do. No, it's a warning. That's a false hope. But it's also encouragement for those of us who feel like, man, I've blown it. And there's no way God can forgive me. No. If we confess our sin, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the gospel. The one who makes atonement for us because we can't. And because of that, we get to stand in His righteousness. What an amazing thing. Let me pray for us, and then Alex, would you and the team come and close us in worship? So Lord, we are uh, challenged by these words. We find ourselves somewhere along the spectrum, and maybe even in both camps. There are moments, Lord, where we feel pretty good about ourselves, and we look down on others. And there are other moments where we are faced with our failure, and we are just discouraged. But you've come to bring hope, correction to both sides. And so we're grateful for this good word you have for us. So Lord, would you make us grateful for yourself, the King of Kings who came for us, to make us your sons and daughters, to make us your children and to give us your life, and to give us this ministry of reconciliation to men and women who need it around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming for us and for your words to us today. It's nearly my pray these things. Amen.